Hello, and welcome to episode four of the NHSR podcast. Just for those of you who don't know, it never occurred to me that anyone who didn't already know what NHSR was would find this podcast, but apparently they have, so I'm going to start saying what it is. So NHSR is a group of people in the UK, and we basically uh, support uh, health and social care, and people who are using R, people are using Python. So it's, as Mohammed always says, it's uh, NHS plus and R plus. So it's, it's NHS and R colleagues and friends in social care and academia and elsewhere and it's also uh, our other friends in other sorts of data science open tools so we like open source tools we like to share our analytics um, and today we have with us uh, Colin Angus who's a very good example of all of those things that I'm talking about he's currently a, a senior research fellow in the Sheffield Alcohol Research Group within SHAR and I shall also I did forget to do this for the first couple of episodes as well introduce myself my name is Chris Beely. I'm the co-chair of the Technical Advisory Group of NHSR, and I'm a data scientist who works in Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust. Right, so let's kick off, Colin. So the first question is, many of, your, many of our listeners will be familiar with you from your work on the COVID data. How and why did you get started with that, and uh, what have you done with it so far? Hi, Chris. For a, for a while, I've used Twitter, you know, pre, pre-pandemic. I used Twitter to kind of, for, as a like as an engagement, a scientific engagement tool, both to kind of promote my own research and find out what other people were doing, um, but also to occasionally do like little bits of analysis, which weren't kind of interesting or important enough to write up for a proper academic publication, I guess. I've got a bit of a, uh, you know, bee in my bonnet about the fact that we don't really value just like descriptive statistics and descriptive epidemiology very much in science. And so, um, you know, I, I quite like doing little bits of that and then publishing that on Twitter. And um, I, when the pandemic started, I initially swore that I thought I felt like people like John Byrne Murdoch and, um, uh, you know, various data journalists at places like The Economist had. Like, I felt like they really had this. I felt like there wasn't really anything useful that I could add um, in terms of you know, uh, additional COVID analysis. So I steered well clear for the first few weeks. But um, one of the the things about kind of like the overarching themes of my academic research is a real interest in inequalities and understanding how, um, you know, mostly alcohol policies, but not only alcohol policies, impact on different groups in the population differently and how things can make inequalities worse or better. And so I was really, you know, I was really interested in terms of how the pandemic was going to play out in terms of exacerbating or, or narrowing, probably exacerbating those inequalities. And one of my colleagues tagged me into a conversation on Twitter where someone had said, you know, oh, what's the what's the inequality in cases at the moment in the UK? And uh, someone else has said, oh, well, you know, we've got case rates at local authority level. That was the data that was available at that stage. And you can kind of map local authority level onto a measure of deprivation to sort of get a, and it, it's not perfect, but it, it gives you a sense of the, um, uh, you know, the differential impact in different socioeconomic groups. And so, and, and yeah, my colleague tagged me in and said, oh, Colin could do that because he knew that I'd be interested in it. And I'd know where all the data was and probably knock something together quickly. And, um, and at that point, basically I fell off the wagon and, um, and just started, you know, I did that analysis and actually that analysis was surprisingly boring, right? It didn't show any nice socioeconomic gradient. It showed that at that stage, everything was dominated by whether you were in London or not, because that was very much the early epicenter of the, of the pandemic in the UK. 
and yeah, but sort of having fallen off the wagon then, I just, I got really, you know, it was a really strange time, I guess. We were all trying to make sense of what was going on. And my way of making sense what was of what was going on was to try and visualize things because that's, I've got a very visual brain, right? I'd always prefer to look at a graph than a table or read some text. And so I just started making, you know, graphics of, of what was going on in terms of, of COVID data, as much for my own sake as anyone else's, but I posted them on Twitter because that's what I do. And um, yeah, people seem to find them useful. So I, I carried on. And um, yeah, and since then, I mean, COVID is a really fascinating time for, um, you know, data scientists and people who are interested in health data because we've suddenly seen this, this real acceleration in terms of the availability of data and um, the, the timeliness with which data is published. So, you know, we now get weekly updates on mortality data that only is, you know, is only a few weeks behind um, actual mortality data, whereas previously you had to wait, you know, a year or two in order to find out what was happening. And so suddenly there's all this data that wasn't there before and it's been made much easier to access through things like um, the COVID dashboard and so there's a whole load of, of data out there to, to go at and it's not very difficult to find interesting or different angles on things that you haven't seen anyone else do which is which is really exciting and so it's quite um, it's kind of addictive I guess trying to get a handle on what's what's going on and it, it's you know yeah, just trying to make sense of the the sometimes overwhelming amount of data that's out there. That's that's kind of what I've been trying to do. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the COVID dashboard there, really, because I don't know if you listened to the podcast with them on, but they did actually mention your name. And I think you have had some sort of back and forth with them, haven't you, about, uh, you know, how the data is structured or, you know, various. So how important do you think their, you know, the way they did their work, how important do you think that was for, for how it turned out? I, I mean, I think the dashboard's absolutely amazing. I was... Um, you know, just this morning, trying to look at some US data and the Center for Disease Control, the sort of the main US hub, like their equivalent of the UK dashboard is a really beautiful website with loads of nice visualizations, but actually trying to download the data out of it and into R is a swine. And so that made me really, and they do have an API, but it's like, a, it's the kind of API that you used to get you know, in the olden days where you have to read reams and reams of documentation and try loads and loads of calls to the API, and then maybe you'll eventually crack the code and work out how to get what you want out of it. Whereas the UK dashboard API is incredibly user-friendly and makes it so, so easy to just get what you want. So I think that's fabulous. I mean, the, the, like the, the, the back and forth thing I've had with the, the COVID dashboard people is partly because I already... And like I knew some of them through my previous work, right? Um, Claire Griffith, the, the head of the, um, the dashboard, she used to be in charge of um, alcohol stuff at Public Health England or some parts of alcohol stuff at Public Health England. And so I'd worked with her in that capacity. So I kind of knew her. And also, like, I'm a terrible pain in the bum in terms of looking at data and pulling at threads and going at this looks a bit wrong or like like I think that's my you know we've all got like really weird banal superpowers right and I think one of my like not terribly useful superpowers is just being able to like look at some data look at a table or a graph and go 
that bit looks a bit wrong. What's going on there? And then I can't help myself but pull at that thread and try and work out what's going on. And because the um, COVID data was being published so quickly and the definitions of what was being published were changing so rapidly, there was quite a lot of those kind of weird little wrinkles in the data. And so, um, yeah, so I would then hassle the dashboard team and go, what's going on here? And sometimes I'd misunderstood something and sometimes, you know, there was some glitch at their end, which they then fixed. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really good, this is grist to our NHSR mill, I think, really, because it just goes to show, you know, clearly the analytics side of things is very open. So I use, I don't, haven't really analyzed a lot of COVID data. So I use the dashboard as a citizen and I think it's very good and clean and I was using it this morning. Um, but what you're saying is that actually, you know, having an open, essentially a, a, a usable data architecture behind it, unlike the American equivalent, is actually very important for kind of, I don't know whether you'd call it citizen analytics or that kind of thing. And it's interesting you were saying about there being a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, activity like, you know, what can I add and finding lots and lots of stuff that you can add. Because one of the things, and yeah, you'll have to sort of slightly pardon my ignorance, I actually don't know a lot about COVID. That's my sort of dirty secret working in the NHS. But one thing I did hear, certainly near the beginning, was actually there was a lot of useless activity as well. A lot of kind of people, you know, with good intentions, often like private companies or whatever, who wanted to kind of, uh, you know, get involved. Did a, There was a lot of kind of pointless churning. So I don't, I do, was that your experience? Did you, would you agree with that? I mean, to some extent, I guess that was part of what kind of put me off getting involved at the beginning, right, was that I didn't I didn't see any point in just redrawing graphs that I'd already seen 20 times before with, you know, colours that I liked slightly more. That didn't really seem like that was a useful contribution to the world. I'm not enough of a, you know, a tedious pedant that I demand everything to be in colours that I like. But I think there is there has been a huge amount of added value produced by the kind of that citizen analysis. Because just because there's so much data out there, there's no way that the kind of, you know, that um, any one body, no matter how well resourced, is going to be on top of all of it. I mean, a good example of that recently is the like the Immensa scandal, where we've had a load of um, faulty tests, right? People being told that they tested negative when actually they were positive, and that was first identified way before it was picked up kind of at a, at a national level, picked up by the media or by the, the people in the, you know, the, the relevant departments. That was identified by some of these kind of, you know, citizen analysts, right? That was picked up by people on Twitter who were just kind of kicking the wheels of the data and going, there's something a bit weird going on here. And then once some person goes, hey, there's something odd going on here, then some other people will chip in and try and work out what's going on. And there's kind of like a really nice community of people who go, oh, here's this weird thing that I found, what's going on there? And then other people can add to it and kind of say I'll you know explain it or not as the case often is yeah I mean it's that many eyes thing isn't it people talk about many eyes with code you know the idea that you know if 100 people review a code base you know one of them will spot something and I think the the, the COVID thing has really showed that that's a really powerful and as you say some of them are literally citizens they're not kind of researchers at Char like you are they are just dude with a spreadsheet basically yeah that's absolutely amazing. No, you know, it, it, it is amazing. And I think like I think it's important not to be not to be snobby about these things, right? Not to go, oh well, you're just a member of the public. Like members of the public are great. They know. No, absolutely, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's often a, a thing is that I suppose it would be their area, isn't it? That's what they're doing. So maybe, I mean, as I say, I'm a little bit ignorant of COVID, but they could even bring some local you know, they could look at something and go, Well, that's weird because that area is bigger than that area. Or, you know, they've got 
they're looking at their patch. I was talking about maps earlier in the week, actually. It was the same thing. What they were saying was a big team looking at the whole of the UK. It, it's too complicated. It's too much. Actually, it's better to kind of, you know, hive these things and break them down. And that's what kind of citizen, you know, that's kind of what we're all about, really. Yeah, definitely. There is no there's no substitute for local knowledge often. That's a real, you know, that's something that that yeah, you can't get from like big centralized teams. You need kind of, you know, boots on the ground, as it were. People who have that kind of local perspective can really tell you what's going on. I mean, you know, a good example of that, I guess, was um uh, early on in the vaccination drive, you know, back at the sort of spring of this year. I was trying to, we got data on vaccination rates at quite at low levels of geography, and I was trying to map them. And there was a few areas on the Welsh border which had like weirdly low vaccination uptake. And I was confused by what there was. And then someone who lives in the area said, oh, that's because actually those particular areas are much better connected transport wise to places in Wales. And so I bet you the people that live there are registered with Welsh GPs and getting vaccinated in, in the Welsh statistics. So you know, and so suddenly that makes a lot of sense. And you can pick out these little points and go, oh, that's what's going on there. But I, I'd have, you know, it'd have taken me ages to work that out myself. So I'm just imagining a world, you know, where it's not just COVID, where th there's more of this, because we're all interested in health, aren't we? Everyone's, in, people are interested in, you know, in death rates, in how maternity wards, you know, there's so much health data. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously we're not going to have such a, a streamlined, slick operation for in something that's not a pandemic. Um, but that would be really great, I think, if we could turn our kind of citizen analysts on. Absolutely. And I think that something that, you know, this was a trend that you could see before the pandemic, right, that um, that data and like data driven journalism was becoming much more of a thing. You know, newspapers were hiring much bigger teams of like visual journalists and, you know, this sort of this explosion of like scrolly telling stories where you get these really interesting stories with great visuals that kind of, you know, appear as you're going through the story and really help to tell the story. I think we as a society were becoming much more data literate and kind of demanding much more data in, in a, kind of in the storytelling of what was going on in the world. And the pandemics really like pushed the accelerator on that, I think. And so it shows that there's a real, like there's a real appetite in the wider public for good data to be available and for, you know, analysis of that data. And there's loads of stuff that you might have worried at the beginning that like was a bit pointy headed and academic and like the wider public just wouldn't get, you know, right at the beginning of the, the pandemic, there was a big, you know, a big, the great log scale argument. Should we be plotting cases on a linear scale or a log scale? And the argument for a log scale being, oh, well, it's, you know, you'd expect the growth of a virus to be exponential. So we should put it on a log scale and then we'd expect to see straight lines. And the argument against the log scale is that people don't get it. So you should stick it on a linear scale. And um, actually, people like people just accept of just, you know, people seem to have learned how log scales work just fine. And um, and that's not, you know, that's not an argument anymore. We just put things on log scales now quite often. And there's loads of stuff like that, which you might superficially worry is a bit too complicated. But if you explain it in a, you know, in a in a friendly, accessible way, which is, you know, that's a, a particular skill. Yeah, people are, you know, interested and will get involved. There's been stuff that I've posted on Twitter that I felt like, oh, this is, you know, this is a really niche might be of interest to about five people and I've had amazing engagement from it you know all sorts of people have gone oh this is really interesting and asked really you know clever and pertinent questions I've been really impressed with the 
you know, the, the quality of critical thinking and interest from the wider public. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, right. So we've done open data. Let's just move things on slightly. Let's talk about open source for a bit. So one of the things that the NHSR community is, is so keen ab uh, about with your work is that obviously you open source uh, a lot of it. So how important do you think it is to your work that you open source it? And how important do you think that is with analytic work generally? Like, I think it's super important. So as I said before, I pre-pandemic, I would do kind of these little bits of analysis and post them um, online. And after a while of doing this, I felt like it would be good to, to open source that. Right? I felt like I, you know, I was using R for a lot of this, which obviously is a, you know, a, a free open software. And you know, GitHub exists, and it's, I was initially concerned that it might be complicated. Like I'd have to, you know, you need to be some kind of clever person that uses the command line all the time and only has a Linux computer in order to, to use GitHub. And it turns out that actually, you know, a child could use it. You just drag some files into a you know, copy and paste some files and that's it. That's all you need to do. And so that, that wasn't really a barrier to sharing things anymore. So it, it, back in 2019, I kind of made this decision. I was like, right, I'm just going to, I'm going to make myself just post the code for all of the stuff that I post on Twitter. And there was sort of lots of different reasons why that was. Partly it was like a kind of commitment device to make myself get better at R, but also because I felt like other people might find some of this stuff useful. Like I've, you know, I've learned everything I know about R from just looking at other people's code and, you know, looking stuff up on Stack Overflow and reading people's answers. And so I felt like even though it didn't seem like a lot of what I was doing was really very clever, my past self would have benefited from seeing the stuff that my present self at that point was writing. So other people might be in the same position as my past self. So I felt like it was worth sharing code. And also it's just transparent, right? It's about showing you working and other, so other people can see what you've done. And um, like, I think it's really important to be humble in what you're doing, right? Like I'm, you know, my background might be in health research, but I'm not a virologist. I'm not an epidemic, you know, I'm not a, an epidemic specialist. And so like all the stuff that I've done on COVID, I'm always very careful about um, not overinterpreting things, you know, knowing the limits of my own understanding and being humble about that and saying, well, this seems to be a bit weird, but maybe there's a sensible explanation. And posting all of your code kind of, I guess, fits in with that ethos. You go, you know, you say, here's what I've done. Maybe I made some mistakes, but now I'm showing you what I've done so you can find them, right? You, and you can tell me. Whereas if I just do it secretly all on my own computer and then post the results, then no one's got any way of kind of assessing whether I've done the right thing or done something stupid. I guess it's kind of you're showing your assumptions, which is really important, right? I, I teach health economics and I spend about 50% of all of my lectures just going, make assumptions and be transparent about them and you'll be all right. right? And that's the important thing is just to, you know, justify, make some decisions, justify those decisions and explain them and you'll be fine. Yeah. And I think the thing is assumptions are often expressed very concisely and clearly in code, aren't they? That's the thing. It can take a couple of paragraphs to describe data assumptions that actually, are, you know, remember two lines of tidyverse. So, it does remind me of a, of a joke, a joke that happened in real life. I don't if you heard this story, of I can't remember who it was. Someone came up with a model for um, transmission in um, of COVID transmission in a university, 
and uh, I think it was a, it was a physics department or something. And basically, the joke went: the physics department came up with this model, and the model didn't include the fact that all the students would go to parties because, of course, a physics department wouldn't know that students go to parties. That was the joke. But, it, you know, it was a real thing. And I, I suppose that's partly what I was talking about at the beginning when I was talking about all the useless analysis. I think, as you're saying, there were a lot of kind of heavyweight heavyweights from other fields coming in and kind of, you know, lecturing the epidemiologists and, you know, like, oh, we've got this, guys. And actually they haven't. And, you know, by stating your assumptions, you're making sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, that that is definitely a problem, particularly with... Um old white guys that's a real trope right yeah indeed <laughs> just these professors who go i don't know anything about this topic area but i reckon my method could be applied here and then just you know with no self-reflection just go i have found some answers and these are the answers but i think it's really important not to be that guy you know to be to make sure that you're humble and you know, to accept that you're going to make mistakes. Like, I, I quite like making mistakes because it means you get to learn something. Like, I don't, you know, when I was younger, I guess, I used to be really hung up on making mistakes. And I, you know, I get into arguments with people and I wanted to be right, right? The aim of getting into an argument was to just be right. Whereas now, it's much more, like, if I get into arguments pe with people, I'm, they're much more an opportunity for me to learn something, right? I'm not really trying to win the argument. I'm trying to find out where what's wrong with my like the, you know the argument that I'm putting forward and it's the yeah it's the same with analysis in some ways I'm just you know I'm putting things out there and I'm trying to learn something I'm trying to find out what's what I could do better you know what have I missed from this and I think that's uh you know I think that's really important it's really important to be humble I mean it's a sort of new I keep meaning to write a blog post about this we seem to be in the old you know before before I think it was a case of you would get these big august bodies that would make these pronouncements on tablets of stone and we just sort of soak them up and, and that was how it went and it now seems to be much more that people are expected to subject themselves to scrutiny and to you know state their qualifications and their assumptions and all that kind of, and that's a good you know that's a good thing and what we're talking about open data open code citizen and you know all that is all part of breaking down in the nhs i mean i you know i love the nhs i've always worked in the nhs but I think sometimes we can be too much like we are the NHS. That's it. There you go. Take it or leave it kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to make a, a confession, right, which is I think part of the reason why I really thrown myself into open coding, all of this kind of analysis is that I've wrestled with this a lot in my academic research is that a lot of the work that I do involves the use of really complicated, obtuse models which are written in really unfriendly software. They're not designed to be user-friendly and they're not open, right? And so like that, that's a bit of a guilty secret, I guess. <laughs> and people have asked us, you know, oh, can we see your code? And we always struggle a bit with this because, you know, we want to be open and we want to share things with people, but actually, you know, we've only once just given someone else a copy of the, this, you know, one of these models to let them do their own analysis and they messed it up and ended up publishing some numbers that just didn't make any sense because even though we trained them the model just wasn't designed to be used by other you know designed to be used by people that hadn't weren't sort of steeped in the lore of the model which is you know and i think that's that's hard that's but there's much more tricky issues around that and we are moving towards a situation where you know my colleague duncan gillespie has spent ages developing a fabulous new 
R-based version of the model, which will be much more open. And I think that's brilliant, right? But I, th I think part of my desire and enthusiasm about being open with this is the fact that this isn't like, th there's no good arguments not to be open with this kind of analysis, right? So just do it. Yes, indeed. I think, I mean, yeah, I think, yeah. If you're not being open, it seems these days, basically the message is that you're doing that for your own interest you're, you're controlling the conversation and you know that's that's the only reason you can be doing it really i'm glad you mentioned github actually i'm just going to very quickly bang one of my own drums since you brought it up because i, I am one of those linux terminal guys um i don't use github to a very advanced level but i do use it to a fairly advanced level um but yeah it's worth just saying to people who are listening to this who are wondering who are in the same situation that you were in before you started using github is that although you can do some incredibly complicated amazing things with github which i even i haven't quite mastered um as you say you can also just stick all your code on it and there's nothing wrong with doing that we don't need to see a beautiful commit history and github actions and that's really optional what we want to see is the code and the other thing to mention which i think you also kind of touched on is we just want to read it we don't have to like have all the data and have all of this and that and the other and you know that's not really necessary we can learn so much about what you're doing just from just reading it so that you don't get hung up about data sets and oh i can't share this and i can't share that and I, you know like show your assumptions show your work and show what you've done show the methodology and a that's trying you know that we can then look at what you've done and b it, it helps everyone learn so that's that's a good point absolutely like i'm I'm very much of the belief that you should never let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? I'm, you know, I'm very much a pragmatist. And so I'd much rather that we were putting, you know, the code out there rather than going, oh, well, this is, I'll just, I'll tidy this up. This works for now, but I'll tidy it up later and I'll turn it into a package and I'll put all the data sets up and make the documentation nice. And I'm not going to share anything until then, right? I think that's because then you'll never, you know, often you don't really get around to it. And then the code just sits on your hard drive and no one else can see it. It's much better to just be as transparent as you can. Like I've got loads of like half finished projects and work in progress. If you want to go digging around in my GitHub. Yeah, I mean, I've got some frightful rubbish on my GitHub. If anybody <laughs> wants to see it, then just I'll happily send you a link. Some of my code is nicely polished because it's supposed to be done properly and I like people to look at it. But some of it's just oh, I threw this together in an afternoon and I share it because, you know, why not? So we talked about COVID, we talked about open, which is great. So let's just talk about, because you're obviously you're not just a, you're not just the COVID guy. You've done a lot of alcohol research. So just tell us a bit about that work and what methodologies you use. Yeah. So um, uh, as I said, a lot of that work involves the use of quite complex models, right? And it involves hoovering up loads and loads of data from all sorts of different data sources, right? So the, you know, the, the biggest bit of work that I've been involved in is modeling the impact of alcohol pricing policies on people's alcohol purchasing behavior and their drinking and then their health. Okay, so we say, all right, what happens if we stick, you know, an extra five pence on the price of beer? What does that do to people's drinking and how and, and their health? And how does that impact differently on different groups in the population? Right. So if you increase the price of beer, you can have a disproportionate impact on um on younger men who tend to drink beer in pubs much more than women who tend to drink wine and older people who tend to drink at home, for example, you know, just to, um, as an example. And, <clears throat> and so that involves the kind of the pulling together of data from all sorts of different sources. We need data on um, alcohol prices. We need data on how much people are drinking 
and what those people are drinking. We need data on um, how changes in price lead to changes in consumption. So, you know, price elasticities, as you would call them. Um, and then we also need loads of health data, right? We need to understand what the current prevalence of alcohol-related diseases and mortality is. And so we've got this model that can that, that pulls all these things together. And I guess that's kind of that's where my real interest in just doing random little bits of analysis came from, because we've got all this data kind of sitting around and we don't really harness the power of it as much as I would like to. So, you know, that's kind of how I often get distracted doing that. Um, and so, I've, you know, I've been lucky enough to be involved in um, some really interesting and important research using this. So the, the Scottish government introduced a minimum unit price for alcohol um, back in 2018. And prior, to, they actually passed the law for that to happen um, five or six years before then. And then there was a very long court case um, because the alcohol industry didn't like the idea that some alcohol might get more expensive. And so they challenged the legality of the policy. And um, some of the work that I did was, you know, integral to that court case, which is something that as a, you know, before I was an academic, I'd never have imagined that I was going to end up like getting cited by the UK Supreme Court. That's a bit scary, but also, you know, exciting and a real, you know, I, I feel really lucky to have been involved in that work. Um, and I've also been involved in some other really interesting projects, um, like we were involved in um, some work around the development of the new UK drinking guidelines that were launched at the very beginning of 2016. Uh, we did some work kind of to to model basically the levels of risk associated with different levels of drinking sort of to inform the discussion of the you know the, the expert group about what what level the drinking guidelines should be at so i've been really lucky to be involved in really interesting um and impactful research which is you know great and i think that's also like that's that's also where my interest in kind of science communication has come from i think because you know, if, if you, a lot of areas of academic research aren't really very, you know, they're hard to get people outside the field enthused about, I guess, right? But everyone has an opinion about alcohol. <laughs> so I'm forever talking about my research with my friends. You know, they're, they're forever asking me, like, if we're down the pub, you know, it's an obvious topic of conversation. And, you know, some people hate talking about their work. I really enjoy talking about mine. And so that's, I've had loads of experience of talking to, non-academics about my research which has been invaluable I guess in terms of then trying to work out how to communicate that research to the wider public because I know you know I'm familiar with the kinds of you know the same questions that people always ask. <laughs> yeah it's interesting so I mean is that part of your work as well are you trying to reflect the kind of you know the view from the sort of well literally the man in the pub in that case you know like because that's obviously it's this is a societal change isn't it so is that part of what you're doing um i mean i guess i'm just i'm interested in um in trying to communicate the research that we've done right so and the evidence shows that um people are actually more supportive of increasing the price of alcohol than you might intuitively expect um and if you actually explain to them what the policies are doing and how they work, they're even more supportive. And so I think explaining um, the evidence is really important in terms of trying to get people to understand what you're actually trying to do rather than just um, you know, getting past the idea that uh, increasing the prices of stuff is just like nanny statism and you know, is all bad. Um, but, but just more broadly, I think it's really 
it's useful to be able to communicate research of all kinds. And I, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in, um, in working out how to do that better, I guess. And that's why, you know, that's a big reason of why I love Twitter is because you can get feedback on what works and what doesn't, right? If I try and explain something or if I produce a graph of something and people don't understand it, I'll have loads of people going, what is this? You know, asking me questions. And that's, that's, a, that's a great learning opportunity, right? That teaches me how to do it better next time, which is great. It's important to listen to feedback. It does keep you on it. It keeps you honest, doesn't it, Twitter? I find that. I sometimes go on and say something that a room, if I was with people that I know, they'd all agree with. And then people are kind of shouting at me, telling them I got it wrong. And that's very helpful. Yes. I mean, up, you know, obviously up to a point, like I think you can, you know, there's some very rude and trollish people about, right? And you have... Yes, I, I couldn't say that I find them particularly helpful. <laughs> <laughs> More in the middle, I meant. No, no. But, you know, people are mostly nicer than the stereotypes would have you believe and i've had loads of really useful feedback that i really appreciate and you know you just have to learn to block and move on with people who are just out there to pick a fight yeah i'm interested actually in the in the, the inequalities angle of the alcohol thing so because you mentioned young men in pubs just wondering presumably alcohol pricing affects income groups differently as well like is that part of your work as well yeah absolutely so like a, a big um like a really common argument that people make against um, policies that involve making alcohol more expensive, like increasing taxes or introducing a minimum price, is that it's just a tax on the poor. Right? That's, the, that's a really common argument made by people who are against alcohol policies. And actually, it kind of, it's all about perspective. Like it all depends on what you want to achieve, right? What do you want your policy to achieve? And if you care about reducing inequality, right, then you need your policy to target the, the most, like the lowest income group, because they're the ones who are suffering the highest rates of harm related to alcohol. And so if you care about reducing inequality, you want a policy which is going to have a disproportionately large effect on um, people in more deprived groups, right? But I would argue actually it's even, even if you don't care about inequality, right? The biggest win in terms of improvements in health come from improving things for the people in the most deprived groups because they're the people in the poorest of health right there's a bigger a bigger win right for every um you know for every bottle of wine that you can reduce people's drinking by you you kind of gain more health if that is coming out of a more deprived group than a less deprived group right just because that's you know that's the sad fact of it is that um people in more deprived situations suffer more health harm from their drinking and so even if you don't really care about reducing inequalities, you just want to see the maximum overall impact of a policy, right? You just want to gain the most health. You want to make society as healthy as possible. Then you want a policy which is going to target um, uh, more deprived groups more. And so, you know, if all you, if all you care about is, um, you know, so you can say like the bigger, so, you know, there's lots of arguments about whether alcohol taxes are regressive, right? Do they have a bigger proportional impact on the incomes of people on lower income? And, you know, you can argue the toss about whether they are or they aren't. But even if they are, just thinking about things in terms of money is a very narrow framing, right? Because you're excluding the fact that those same lower income groups are gaining most of the health benefits. So, you know, if it's very, it might be a regressive economically, but it's very progressive in health terms. And so, you know, it depends, it depends on your perspective, I guess, but that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the picture. 
Indeed. I mean, I would add that, of course, VAT is at historically high levels, isn't it? So if this was a politics podcast, I would uh, I would continue this conversation because I'm sure we both have a lot to say about it. But it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's let's stick to uh, let's stick to dates. Very, very interesting, though. Um, right. So we were just saying before we I hit record, actually, that everyone's got a story about how they get started with R. So I'm curious as to how you got started. Yeah, so well, one of my colleagues um, is a very has always been a very big R user, and he's you know he's quite evangelical about it and was trying to persuade people to use it more. But I was um, you know very wedded to using Stata predominantly to do my analysis and Excel to draw graphs. And I think some people get really snobby about you know wailing on Excel, but I'm quite happy. Like I'd much rather people got enthused about data and data visualization and I kind of don't really care what tools they're using right someone draws a nice graph in excel then I'm happy um so I don't you know it's important not to be snobby about those things but um I had a there was a paper and I really wanted a particular kind of graph and I just couldn't work out how to draw it right I was trying to it's like a scatter plot and I wanted to show uncertainty in both dimensions around all of the points so I wanted like a series of little crosses where the lengths of the vertical and the horizontal bars represented the uncertainty. Yeah, I saw one somewhere and thought, that's really, that's exactly what I want. I want that graph. And I could not, you know, maybe if I'd spent a really long time, I could have worked out how to hack Excel to draw it. But um, yeah, my colleague Duncan just went, oh, you know, that's, that should be easy with ggplot. And um, so, he, you know, he sent me some code and I kind of spent a while working through it. And eventually worked out how to do it and created a plot and you know it's the paper got published the plot is out there in hindsight it's not a very beautiful plot but that's kind of that's where it began i guess and then i sort of from that i'd realized the power of um ggplot in particular to kind of just to do what is so flexible that's what i really love about it right if you can imagine something you can probably draw it right i'm yet to find uh you know a graph type where I've invented this, I've got this vision in my head and I just can't make it happen. There's some like, you know, little minor aspects of things that I've, you know, find frustrating because I can't work out how to do. But in terms of the broader structural nature of, of graphics, I've not really found anything that I can't do that I really want to do because there's always some cleverer person than me who's thought about it beforehand and written a package or, you know, the ggplot itself is so amazingly flexible. And so I started off just, I do all my, all I really understood was ggplot. And so I do all my data processing in Stata or in Excel and then just save a CSV file. And then I could read that into R and then draw a nice graph. And I slowly kind of, there was a few times when I'd imported the data into R and it was wide instead of long format. And so, you know, I learned, I learned how to use gather. And then slowly I learned how to do more and more of the stuff in, in R rather than doing it outside of R. And then once I decided, you know, once I'd committed to doing, publishing all of the, making all of the code behind everything that I was publishing open, then kind of I had to do it all in R because it's not open to just sort of do random bits of mucking around in Excel. And then, um, yeah, and, and then just post the kind of the visualization bit because that's, you know, that's not replicable. Other people don't know what weird stuff I've been doing in Excel beforehand. So, and from that, yeah, I really then had to learn how to do all sorts of, you know, the extra stuff. And some of it was a bit of a pain, but the important thing 
was having made that decision. It was like, I had, I've got to come up with a solution to this because otherwise I can't post replicable code to do it. So I'd always find a way. Um, yeah. And then since then, it's just been a, yeah, a, a learning experience, I guess. There's always new things to learn. And I really, like, I enjoy setting myself little, little challenges and learning new things as a result of them. So like there's a, um, something called the 30 day map challenge at the moment, right? Where the idea is that you post a map every day. And I really enjoy it. Like I'll deliberately, I'll often deliberately try and do something that I don't know how to do, right? And it might be something really minor, you know, I'm gonna use a new data set or I'm gonna you know, use a new package or even just, you know, I'm gonna try and work out how to use a new font or just some daft little thing. Um, and I really, like I think that learning experience is really good and um, and something I really enjoy. And um, R makes that really easy because there's the community is so nice and helpful and there's so many amazing open resources out there. There's so many other people who have shared their code. And something that I think is something that I really like about R that I haven't got the same sense, like I'm not a hardcore programmer, but something that I, I think R has the other programming languages I've used don't have to the same extent is that there's usually about 10 different ways to do anything. And I don't, I don't just mean like conceptually, you could solve this problem in 10 different ways. I mean, like there'll be 10 different packages or different syntaxes that you could use in order to, to achieve the same thing. And so what that means is if you're really stuck with one of those syntaxes, and you can't make it work and you don't know why and you've got this error message and there's no stack overflow hits telling you how to fix that error message you can just try a different approach and that like that's that's really valuable i think it makes it so much easier to kind of solve those knotty problems because there's probably you know there's there's so many different ways of getting around it yeah i mean the thing is someone's always had your exact problem haven't they there are so many people all over the world i mean the r stats hashtag on twitter is amazing like people go on there and say something and then like five literal world experts will just poll up and start saying oh you should do this you should like this package and you know it's quite incredible really yeah it's brilliant and and what i love is that people are so nice and not snobby like you could like the you know, quite a lot, often people come to me and say, you know, I, I'm really interested in um, learning more about using R to visualize data, but I don't really know where to start. And, um, you know, part of what I say to them is just do it, you know, just commit to it and, and try it. But I, I think things like Tidy Tuesday are really useful. You know, that's a, Tidy Tuesday is just like this big online thing where every Tuesday, um, someone posts an open data set and then kind of the challenge is you've got to visualize some aspect of this data set and then post your visualization with the hashtag tied to Tuesday and a link to your code. And that's an amazing community because there's, there'll be people who like it's their first plot and they're just drawing like an absolutely bog standard scatter plot. And, and then there's other people like incredible like data art wizards making you know stuff that you would be happy to stick on your walls and and they're talking to each other and helping each other out and that's amazing like there's no patronizing that i've seen anyway it's just such a nice helpful uh community which i think is wonderful yeah i mean i've seen yeah you're right i've seen some very basic stuff and everyone loves it. And that's why I always say about NHSR as well, I think it applies to our more generally, 
is that we love beginners. Like we actually have a preference, which I think is maybe a little different to the rest of the tech world. We like beginners because we just get so excited about how much they've got to learn and what they can do. And it's that feeling, isn't it? And it's really great. And speaking of snobbiness, I do just want to mention Excel because this is the debate that never dies. Um, so this is me banging one of my drums again, I suppose. I think the thing about Excel is I think people like me do get accused of being snobby about Excel. And I think my point is always just that Excel is good for a, 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 a set number of tasks. Drawing a, a nice graph of some COVID whatever is, is an example of that. But the problem is that we've seen it vastly, vastly, vastly overextended. Um, and, you know, obviously we, there's a COVID related story, which I won't uh, reheat because I'm sure everybody's heard it many times. But there was that. Um, but there have been so many other things. There's that famous story of that company that lost a billion dollars because they built this colossally complicated economic model in Excel and the whole thing broke. And... You know, that's what I'm, you know, that that's what I think people of my stripe are against. Not Excel, but about Excel. Oh, you know, we've got Excel. Well, let's use it for everything. And, you know, it, it's a tool in the toolbox. I have to say, I don't, I laugh when I see data scientists uh, interviews that, that list Excel because I would fail any test or any interview or anything because I ha haven't touched it for, for literally years, which is partly because all my stuff comes out of databases. So I don't really need a spreadsheet. Um, but yes, I think it can be really good for for certain things, and I think it can be really bad for others. And I think it's just about knowing the difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not here to tell everyone to use Excel. I guess I'm just saying that, um, you know, people. I think some people get like embarrassed about about it, and you can do good stuff in it. And uh, I guess that's all I'm trying to say. You know, I teach, so I I teach um, uh, people how to build health economic models in Excel, and one of the reasons is just because it's so widely available right everyone uses it and kind of everyone or you know a large majority of people have some familiarity with it so if you want to build something where people the most people possible can kind of like um can understand it or interact with it then you know it's a, it's a familiar face i guess whereas um and that's that you know that's not to say that i wouldn't i would recommend everyone should build their models in excel like i think it's great you, you know it's better to build them in r but just if people are going to build them in Excel, that's kind of that's okay for many particularly simpler applications. I guess I don't want to sound like I feel like I'm I'm eulogizing Excel too much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose I guess what all I'm really saying at a basic level is just it, I think the fact that there's sort of two camps is sort of an illusion. I mean, the NHSR survey said that 80% of analysts use Excel, so you know it, it's not like two groups lobbing bobs at each other. It's the same people. So it's a sort of it's a kind of fictionalized debate, really, where a lot of people are just using everything. And it's a bit like the R versus Python war. You know, you do see that occasionally on Twitter and whatever. And again, I think it's just a totally fake war, because certainly within my team, we just use whatever's, you know, to hand and best. And there's some beautiful text models that work out of the box in Python that don't exist in R. So occasionally we crack Python out. And, that, you know, that's how it is. Um, OK, cool. Right. So we're on to the final optional. It is optional, this question now, because I don't like to kind of you don't need to provide a good response to this, but you can if you like. So the final optional question is just uh, what else you think we should have on the podcast? So is there a piece of work or a subject or a person or a team that you would like to hear from on the podcast? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. So I, like I don't have there's not like one person who I think like, oh, I'd really like to hear them being interviewed. I think something like something that I'm really interested in, particularly from a kind of healthcare perspective, is about data linkage, and um, and understanding, you know, 
how that like how that works and why it's much harder than we think it should be right and and so i think that would be really interesting and particularly in the context of the fact that covid seems to have knocked down a lot of the barriers to data linkage right um uh, or certainly some of those barriers so things like the the open safely initiative right where there's you know um that Ben Goldacre and people have been involved in. I think it'd be really interesting to learn more about the, you know, what's what's going on there and how that's been able to to happen, and um, what that might tell us about, you know, the the hopefully the exciting future where we're going to see better linkage of more data. You know, as a, as an analyst, I always want, you know, I want all things linked all the time. Um, yeah, so that's something that I think would be interesting to explore more, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, data engineers are the sort of unsung heroes, aren't they? Is that, um, so I think that's a really good idea. I do. I was chatting to someone about, about OpenSafely who, who works there on me the other day, wondering whether they might be interested. So I might chase that up. But I think actually it, data engineering in general might be, from a data science point of view, might be an interesting uh, thread to pull on. Because I, partly just because I want to just celebrate data engineers because you just, you know, it, it happens all too rarely. And without them, there is nothing to do. So. I can't point to any specific people to talk to, but um, like another, Scotland, I think, has some really interesting examples of data linkage. And they've like, Scotland has always been a bit better than England in terms of linking healthcare data. And, you know, partly that might be because, um, you know, it's it's just there's it's a smaller country. There are less people linking the data is just less onerous. Um, I don't know. Um, but they my sense is that during COVID, they've really smashed a lot of barriers down. And basically they've linked like a crazy amount of health data sets together now. And that's available for analysis, right? And you have to really justify why you're going to get which bits of that kind of linkage. You can't just get the whole thing to play with, which is good. Governance is important, although it's sometimes annoying. Well, that yeah, that comes to trusted research environments, doesn't it? Of which OpenSafely is obviously an example. Yes, um, but yeah, but so you know, there might be some. I'm sure there are people in Scotland who would be interesting to talk to about that kind of thing. Well, if you're listening to this, anyone in Scotland, and you know what we're talking about, then please <laughs> drop me a line because we'd love to have you on the show. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Okay, cool. Thanks very much. Well, I'm going to wrap it up there. So thanks very much for coming on. All right. Nice to talk to you. Um, I've just finished with my usual sign-off to thank Tom Jemmett very much for his help with the edit, which will, I'm sure, be seamless. Um, and we'll see you again next time in about a month. Thanks very much, Colin. Cheers.